Hello again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back as we continue in our third season of the podcast. My name is Jeffrey Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. And on behalf of my board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you back to this episode of Scope of Practice. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines bias as an inclination of temperament or outlook, especially a personal and sometimes unreasoned judgment. When we hear that term, we often go directly to the latter portion of the definition of our own minds, forgetting the adjective sometimes. The reality is, is that bias exists in all of us. We can simply call them preferences. Uh, We perhaps prefer summer to winter, coffee to tea, natural grass, football fields to artificial turfs. That's one of my pet peeves. So if you're listening, Robert Kraft, I hope you make that change. Um, You know, and, and for our purposes today, one path to recovery versus another. Using those examples, we don't criticize skiers who prefer the winter, force tea drinkers to drink coffee, or only support a team that plays on natural grass. Again, Mr. Kraft, are you listening? Get rid of the turf. Uh, But we do often criticize a specific path of recovery that doesn't fit either what we prefer or parallel the route that we may have taken. Having a bias itself is not problematic. It's human nature. But a lack of awareness of such puts those of us in the prevention, treatment, and recovery field at risk of forcing others to act as we prefer, thereby being discriminatory in our practice. Accepting and understanding our biases puts us in a tremendous position to not let it have that discriminatory effect on others, and in many cases, have no impact whatsoever on those we serve. Our guest today joins us to talk about the impact or potentially the non-impact of bias in our work. Donald McDonald is a person thriving in recovery from severe mental illness and substance use disorders. Previously, he served as the National Field Director of Faces and Voices of Recovery, the Executive Director of the Addiction Professionals of North Carolina, and Director of Advocacy and Education at Recovery Communities of North Carolina. His current role is Technical Expert Lead at JVS International, where he provides training and technical assistance to HRSA-funded rural consortia across the country as they build capacity in response to the overdose crisis. Donald is a veteran, husband, father, grandfather, social worker, licensed clinical addiction specialist, and recovery coach professional. He holds a Bachelor of Education from NC State University and a Master of Social Work from UNC Chapel Hill. Donald is a proud recipient of the NCAD Bronze Key Award and the North Carolina Dogwood Award. For fun, he's a producer and host of the YouTube video podcast, No Thanks But Yes, which features chill conversations with splendid people who've overcome chaotic substance relationships. Welcome to the program, my friends. Hey, hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that generous introduction. And the way you frame this conversation is absolutely brilliant. I don't know what I can add to it. <laughs> Come on, chill conversations. How old are we? We're, we're Gen Xers. <laughs> we're Gen Xers. Gen Xers are grandparents now. Who, who, saw, who saw that coming? <laughs> I'm still struggling with a 27-year-old son. I can't wrap my head around that. Right. So, you know, I referenced it in the introduction, but I'd like to talk more about bias in general. You know, like we said, bias is neither positive or negative word, but why do you think we often give it that latter connotation? Indeed. Indeed. Well, because I believe that sometimes our bias is in conflict with who we think we ought to be or the way we think we ought to think or our perception of what popular wisdom may be. 
So if if we've an inclination, uh, sometimes when I've not shared my bias with other folks, because I'm a little bit ashamed, you know, I, I come about it naturally. I'm a little bit ashamed of it. And, um, you know, I, I don't I don't want to be dismissed as a result of having this bias. And um, so I'm, I'm excited that, that my work has taken me to helping addiction professionals to create safe space to explore these as, as neither positive nor negative, just the potential threat of the unexplored bias causing us to provide substandard care, potentially harmful care as well. I think if we can take that negative connotation away, and even the definition says sometimes it can be negative, Um, not all the time. If we can take that away, it allows us, I think, the opportunity to look at some of our biases uh, more clearly. We don't have to share them with the world, but kind of look at them for ourselves. Yes, absolutely. I strongly believe that an exploration of values is, is a great place to start. What do I? believe at this moment in time regarding substance use, substance use disorder, pathways of recovery, medications for opioid use disorder, faith-based recovery, 12-based, what, how do I feel? What do I think? What are my inclinations? Explore those values, but then um, understand that we come about them honestly. And, And that took a while for me to get that I was socialized through many different levels of input to believe and feel the way I do about certain things, whether it was my parents teaching my siblings, the culture I was raised in, the religion I was raised in, the format of the education in early addiction professional studies, uh, leaning heavily one way or the other, my pathway of recovery. Uh, informing or or building or coloring my biases. And that's one that's particularly potent because our pathways of recovery, while, you know, we can look at it clinically is that this, this, this is my pathway of chronic illness, recovery management, leading to a whole life for many folks in recovery. It also has an element of passion and ecstasy and, divine light at times. So cautious around those uh, contributors to our biases when we're getting into the field of, of helping people find their pathway. I think, you know, in my belief is one of the thing that kind of feeds into that is when we talk about things like recovery and we say, uh, you know, it's not yours until you give it away. We interpret that almost literally and we'll say, well, I have to give away or give out, emit exactly what I got and what worked for me. And it's very well intentioned, uh, but it can be problematic at times. Indeed. I mean, just just the very essence of of that statement, whether I'm giving away uh, exactly what I received, but this this culture of this culture of service, this culture of witnessing, um, this came out of, um, you know, the, 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 the Judeo-Christian underpinnings, I think, of 12-step philosophy, which is a beautiful culture, but um, 
you know, I, I I'm not sure, you know, uh, this this business of of selflessness of of service of of uh, th- these are all very um, moralistic and and spiritual concepts civilization concepts I suppose but um, we are compelled in in our culture of recovery to keep what we have by giving it away and and that's fine for that subculture but when we become addiction professionals. You know, it, we have we have broader uh, considerations, our license, our, our ethical codes, uh, whether we're helping people to find, you know, the mountain of hope at the at the apex of recovery or whether, you know, we're helping to, to save lives, reduce disease burden, improve quality of life, help people figure out who they want to be when they get big, stuff like that. Um, I don't know. It's it's a fun profession to be in, but it's complicated. When you talk about the cultural selflessness, it brings me back to when I was in social work school in the mid '90s. Julius Newman, community organizer professor, always said that selflessness and altruism, pure altruism, do not exist yeah. because everything we do, we find some sort of self-interest in it, and that's not being self-centered. That's just recognizing what we get from certain acts and certain mm. participation of things and that we that we as a, a culture need to accept that that sometimes feeling good about ourselves for doing a good thing is just enough but we do get that it's not purely for somebody else indeed um, indeed when we talk about bias and bias put into action you know there's a mm. real optimistic part of me that that hopes that what we are referring to and, and you reference it is is an implicit bias those that come into play certainly unintentionally what are some of them you mentioned some what are some other types of implicit uh biases that are common in our field well uh the the same that are common throughout civilization we have come about honestly biases that are related to race to gender identity to sexual orientation to national origin religion we get a little more into the weeds with addiction recovery uh we get into um you know pathways of recovery whether or not it's 12 step or non 12 step you know which is kind of strikingly similar to some some of the the race construct white or non white you know it 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 gives me pause but these these are the we we don't have a, uh, an exclusive uh, monopoly on on biases. Um, we have to be mindful of them all. Um, pregnant and parenting people who use substances, we may have implicit biases that gnaw at us deeply. Yet we outwardly, uh, you know, try to destigmatize. Um, this population, but in our personal practice, we could still be influenced, whether it's our nonverbal communication uh, or, or our leaning towards more therapeutic or more punitive, whether we're leaning towards family reunification or separation. It, I, I don't, when I talk about implicit bias, I, I usually throw in the end, I don't want to be hijacked by you know, this, this unconscious leaning that as a result of, of, of my upbringing, my education, the media influence on me, I don't want to be hijacked by it 
And, and subsequently, I'm not being the best social worker, the best addiction professional, the best fellow human that I can be. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be hijacked. The opposite of, of that kind of thing is an explicit bias. You know, when mm. we recognize our biases, yet given all the information, still operationalize those biases intentionally. Uh, we see that today. We talk about harm reduction interventions and with medication assisted treatment, but we see it in the real other parts of the world that depending on your political leanings, you may watch a show that feeds into those. And even yeah. if it's not accurate what you're hearing, it's music to our ears and we'll promote it. Uh, how yeah. difficult is it to combat that explicit bias? <laughs> wow. Or it, combating it from becoming a yeah. discriminatory practice? Well, you know, I, I approach implicit and explicit bias kind of the same way in uh, normalizing it to a degree and giving affirmations that I too once was hijacked by this implicit bias, or I too once was driven by this fixed belief, uh, that may be in contradiction to science. Um, so I, I approach it the same way with, with, uh, with empathy, with compassion, with patience, um, with data, hopefully with stories too. And it's difficult to come about enough faces and voices to add to the data that support harm reduction interventions, medications for opioid use disorder because of the stigma surrounding these. We're less likely to have those compelling stories to pair with the compelling data. Mm-hmm. which is really, that's, that's, that's how we drive it home. So we're seeing more people tell their stories in alternate pathways of recovery and, and finding it helpful. Uh, and people who use drugs, we're finding more people coming forward uh, that's, you know, uh, that, that um, uh, you know, dismantle some of our preconceptions about what it means to use drugs. Lots of people use drugs, a few, uh, problematically and a few pathologically, but more stories, more data. That's that's how I approach it. Uh, and I think that's my secret. I think that's my secret sauce, though, is is that I, I'm willing to admit my complicity. I'm willing to acknowledge, you know, that I was hijacked for a good time. But how to do that in a non paternalistic way also in a non-superior way like i too was once where you were but i have evolved <laughs> you know because that's no good so i just i don't know i, I do it in a very self-deprecating way and and um try to bring bring folks along as, as best i can because i know they, they got to be struggling with yeah. it themselves people because you know we don't get into this field to make a whole bunch of money or or whatever we get into this field to help people find freedom and wellness i think i did Uh, and um there has to be some internal conflict going on when when we're in it to win it to help people find freedom and wellness yet we still embrace certain certain biases that are i I believe for myself that i'm going to get my biases are going to come out and somebody's going to catch me on them continually that I'm not fully self-actualized that somebody's going to say to me, Hey, when you said that, I heard this in your voice, or I noticed this in your face, especially the folks that we serve 
who have such tremendous survival skills and, and watching and engaging people is a, is a survival skill. So they're going to pick up on anything like that. Oh, facts. <laughs> so we, we do. And I know you know this. You you go about uh, um, influencing and educating and, and, and evolving addiction professional culture and, and workforce as much as you can. We, we've just beyond our words and deeds, you know, the nonverbals, the face. Uh, I, I have a very expressive face and, and it may be one of the reasons why I got into macro work and, and direct practice. Not so much is I still remember some of the last group therapy that I was facilitating a gentleman walked up to me afterwards and said, man, I want to play poker with you because <laughs> you can't hide nothing. <laughs> and I was like, damn, that's not what I was taught in school. I had a board member that used to kick me under the table every time my facial expression showed my displeasure with something. And I'm so appreciative of her for doing that because it yes. wasn't, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, it was just to let me know. It was pretty yeah. funny. It uh, is. And you talk about having compassion and understanding that people have biases, even when presented with information that's accuracy. And I think that that's a completely opposite kind of effect of somebody like Carl Hart, who has put the information out there that a very small percentage of people who use drugs actually becomes problematic, that there are large numbers of people who use drugs recreationally, regardless of what we believe. But he's, and knowing Carl as I do, that's an in-your-face kind of thing. He, he likes to to stoke the fire. And I'm, yeah. your, your approach is completely opposite. Both are effective for different groups of people. Yes, yes. I, I enjoyed reading Drug Use for Grownups. I've facilitated a, a book group on it as well. But, you know, and Carl says within the book, this book is unapologetically not about addiction. It's got nothing to do with that. This is simply a story of I use drugs. People use drugs. People need to learn how to use drugs more safely. Drug policy has this assumption that everybody uses drugs chaotically or pathologically, and it's part of the problem. But, you know, that's his thing. And, and it was good to hear. But, yeah, my thing is one that I, I am unapologetically about addiction. And, and people experiencing pathology and intersecting with systems that potentially may be causing more harm than good. And I don't know, I hope, I hope to resonate with the individual addiction professional themselves who, who, uh, you know, thanks in part to social media and, and, and authors like Carl Hart and Maya Solovitz bringing other ideas forward and, and shaking loose some of our fixed beliefs and also casting light on some of our past transgressions that, that were done, you know, harm in the name of help. And we've done that here in Connecticut in terms of for the CCB and book groups. We've used Maya Salvage's first book. We use Carl Hart. We use um, uh, Dr. Dodish's book uh, where he, you know, kind of trashes the 12 step thing. And it's not to change people's opinion, but it's really, we, we had talked about as a group to open up people's minds to information that we are uncomfortable with so yeah. we can explore our own biases. We don't have to change opinions. We just have to be aware of what's out there. You get out of that echo chamber mm -hmm. for sure. And, and I do remember some of the first 
that I read uh, in school um, uh, that 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 presented some ideas that were contrary to my own. And I still remember my reaction. Like, why do I have to read this? This is nonsense. This doesn't align with my individual experience. And I look back on that fellow, you know, 10 years ago and, and, and uh, I get it. I can still get myself in that mindset of, of, of rallying my defenses around my beliefs and, and seeing contrary opinions as assaults and uh i don't know there's a certain amount of fear that goes into it and and anger it it's interesting reaction for sure one one of my colleagues up in the pacific northwest dr bob lane always talks about that Um, (laughs) he's awesome (laughs) he is and he talks about uh the, the the fallacy of attribution and he says that we we sometimes get stuck in thinking that the way we see something is universal and we don't want any challenge to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think he's hilarious and incredibly bright and challenges conventional wisdom. But when, I, that's one of the things that when I talk to him, it sticks with me. I was just the sitting here trying to... Nashville, uh, which really kind of drove me to want to talk to you more about this. Okay. Because I, 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 it was a reminder on some things. And for other things, it was new information for me to process. But you focused on bias in those with lived experience. And that it's important to say that that may apply to individuals at all different positions in this field, not simply just peer, uh, as, yes. as we see an increase in peer services now. But um, what makes that sort of bias unique? Indeed, indeed. Lived experience brings potentially tremendous value to our work in connecting with people experiencing bondage to drugs, connecting with people experiencing substance use disorder, but it also brings potential harms when our cultural beliefs uh, are in conflict with, with, with our clinical training and with our ethical considerations with our practice boards. And I know Many people in my experience, which hat often won out, you know, I, I, in the beginning, I had to decide, am I wearing my, my, my recovery community hat, or am I wearing my licensed clinical addiction specialist hat in this moment? And um, I want to help people to decide that. You know, whether you're a certified peer support specialist, any credentialed addiction professional, your lived experience brings a modicum of value. Your specific pathway brings a deep dive into that pathway. But if if you're not mindful about it, you're 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 just pushing people away because they don't want what you have or you have nothing else to offer them, but you do you've a tremendous amount if you fill your toolkit if you fill up your menu with options for people or if you simply listen to them with unconditional positive regard and and set aside your recovery pathway i i, I think that this is this is not discussed enough i was surprised when i decided to kind of get into this uh, that it was kind of niche. And, and I wonder if that's because we just weren't really quite ready for um, the potential harm of lived experience. You know, we, we, it's part of the stigma is romanticizing it, you know, like you're a hero, you're, you're, you're a, 
you're a warrior. It's like, no, no, I'm not. I'm in sustained recovery from a complex and chronic uh, disorder um, through, through, through just a collection of, of, of resources and interventions and resilience or whatever. But um, I think we need to kind of de- demystify and 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 um make it less arcane and 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 ethereal and and what have you um it's it's just it's potentially dangerous but it becomes one of those sacred things that we don't want to we don't want to talk about but uh, we 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 must if we want to keep lived experience as a value trait within the addiction services uh continuum of care we have to do it mindfully in recognizing the potential harm along with the potential uh, strength that it brings. There's a lot of words, but I'm just untying it now while we're talking. But biases as common and as normal as, as they are, are one of those things that are are almost sacrosanct. We can't talk about because (laughs) they're personal to us and we we've developed them through personal experience or through education or whatever, and they're part of us. And a challenge, any challenge to those may feel like an attack. Um, I happen to like doing that kind of stuff, but people who know me, <laughs> I like to be a little bit of a provocateur. Um, yeah, you uh, do. And, and, and when I, and I always say, if I'm wrong, don't tell me, show me. So I can change the way I think, but I get caught in that. So uh, it's yeah. pretty clear that lived, you know, experience obviously is not the only contributor to bias. It also applies to individuals who don't identify as having their own lived experience. You know, what do you think are some of the things that drive their perspective of maybe biases uh, from that group of folks? Oh, indeed. Well, I mean, you know, pe- people who've never used drugs or people who've never experienced uh, a dependence upon a substance or a behavior to bring some modicum of pain relief or pleasure or, or escape people who've never experienced that never experienced substance use disorder. I, I can only imagine you know, what, what their perception of a population of people who do experience that is, despite the depth of their education and training, um, we were all brought up for the last hundred years (laughs) to see, um, you know, a, a, an incontinent relationship with alcohol or drugs as, as a moral failing, as a us, them, as an othering, as a criminal element. Um, fo- folks who, who do not have lived experience um, certainly must explore their biases as well. And they come about them honestly uh, through a, everything conspires uh, to create uh uh, perception of people who use drugs as, as a negative thing, as less than human through through um, pejorative labels like junkie and crackhead, through, you know, acceptable labels, but not in our space like addict and alcoholic or substance abuser. Um, yeah, I, that, I think that's a tremendous point that you brought up, that, that all addiction professionals need to explore their biases against people who use drugs and people experiencing addiction. 
part of this is in my head because of my last podcast conversation with Dr. Carol Fallender. We talked about uh, clinical supervision and how that can drive how someone works and the bunch of different things going on around that. But it also, somebody who may not have lived experience or may identify as such, what they get from their clinical supervisor and exploring that bias, what they get, or, hey, this is how we've always done it. And in our field, mm. that's a pretty strong statement that that is everywhere. We've always done it this way. Yes. Um, and how dare challenge, but, and that it can become a moralistic and pejorative. And it also can come that way from within the, the recovery community. When you look at the development of this, the 12 step fellowships, they were very moralistic based on the Oxford group um, yeah. and they've evolved, uh, but we still see, yeah. see where that can come from. One thing Indeed. about bias is that when we talk about the definition again, it's not value laden by definition. It simply is what it is. Um, yeah. It becomes bias when it goes through the filters of our own mind and our own lives. Um, it's pervasive, not just in our field, but in any industry, as you said, and in society in general. Um, and, and so how do we as individuals at the micro level, bring back my social work education <laughs> how do we ensure that our that our bias does not lead to us being discriminatory yeah well i'll i'll, re I'll repeat it one more time we must explore our values and and on a continuum of belief it's it's not a black and white thing the example that i brought up was I believe that people in recovery all have the same needs. I believe people in recovery have very different needs. And you just adjust your, your value along that scale and you explore everything. And if you're slightly more daring, get into every marginalized population, every behavior and, and explore those values and then explore the presence of potential bias and then commit to yourself I am not going to let these biases impact my behaviors as a, as a helper, as a peer, as a clinician, as a prescriber, as a social worker, as a community member, make a commitment to do so. But beyond that, you know, I shared some specific practices that were suggestions from joint commission because implicit bias in the health profession is just so present that uh, we have to come up with very practical suggestions for providers to engage in simple ones as put yourself in their shoes. You know, this, this, this cognitive exercise that leads to some degree of empathy is stop for a moment. If I were her, how would I be responding in this situation as opposed to just walking in with a white coat a white man with a lettered man and then seeing, you know, a, a woman of color there and, and then having assumptions, actually putting yourself, trying to put yourself in her shoes for just a moment. And it's an excellent exercise. And, 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 and it sounds silly to recommend, you know, like empathy. And then the other one, you know, uh, just to is breathing. You know, and we all know that mm -hmm. if, if we've been in any kind of human relationship that has any potential for emotional uh, reaction is, is to pause and breathe. I mean, those are, that's great advice that comes out of the 12-step community. Pause when agitated. And everything that you just said 
bears repeating a thousand times because it that we have to check it with ourselves. Oftentimes, it's easier to check our values when they're confronted, when we make an error in judgment. We may have to look at that. It's harder to the ones that are kind of hidden that may not be as obvious when they come out. And it's it's taking that look at our values and, and how they change and understanding that they change mm-hmm. is important. And and just what you said with the position, that plays into the, the macro level as well. It's if the idea mm-hmm. of if I were somebody that, that needed the services, would I come here? What would my experience Ooh, be like? Yes. Would I come here? Uh, because it does yeah. have to happen at the at the organizational and field level as well. Um, Indeed, and I think that that's a harder harder push because again, we've always done it this way. This is how our <laughs> um, sure. in the many sectors of our field, uh, there may be some static between roles, be it peer support, prevention, addiction counselors, physicians, etc. Do you see that as an unintended consequence of putting our biases in action? Wow, that's um, that's a very specific question and and worthy of exploring. Um, specifically, conflict between certified peer support specialists and licensed clinical addiction yeah. specialists. Um, Absolutely. I, I think conflict driven by, you know, honestly socialized bias, uh, a, a perception of, of class, a perception of stature, a perception of education, um, you know, a, a resentment towards any of those things. Yeah. So you, you've raised an incredible point of, of even within your own uh, treatment team exploring biases. I harbored explicit bias against um, prescribers, physicians for a very long time and was surprised when I got into the advocacy space. I was like, man, I seem to be getting along better with cops than with docs. What's up with that? I had to explore that. What is, what's the source of this, my feeling some kind of way uh, to physicians, and I found some of the roots of that, and uh, and have have addressed that, and uh, and I have had many peers come to me that have experienced um, expressions of bias from other members of their treatment team, uh, and and oh, that strikes right at their core of 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 experiencing um, imposter syndrome of, of, of the, the low self-esteem and the internalized stigma of, of, of a life of addiction. And then perceiving someone uh, in, on your treatment team, whether it's a physician or a clinician, um, feeling like you're being looked down on. Yeah, you raise an incredible point. Uh, the, the imposter syndrome that you just mentioned, I think, can be pervasive amongst folks with, be it a substance use disorder or or mental health disorder. I was True. talking very early in this podcast to Murphy Jensen, the French Open champ, and he and I had a an offline conversation about imposter syndrome and how we're, we often sit and wait that someone's going to catch us and say, I knew you were a phony. And, and That's me. We, we were laughing about it, 
because it was so it was it struck a chord with both of us um and yeah. i i had a, a difficult time accepting that he would could deal with something like that because of his success and because right. but in, I, I from talking to him oh he's just the person yeah imposter syndrome just it doesn't look at the evidence yeah. and that is actually one of the the cognitive exercise when experiencing that is check in with the evidence what are what are the feedback i'm receiving from my fellows from my superiors what is the impact of my work what have i achieved professionally and personally in my recovery looking at the evidence it isn't the solution but it's a potential counter to the acuity of that feeling yeah, I still wrestle with it, even, you know, pushing almost a couple decades in this journey of, of recovery and and by all accounts, achieving well. Um, I, I still wrestle with it uh, occasionally, but it doesn't it, it doesn't wrestle me to the ground anymore. And I'm able to help uh, some other peers help to process it as well. Yeah, it, it's an everyday process for me that I have to be aware of. Um, <laughs> Uh, because it, it it's aware of me, <laughs> so I have to understand <laughs> that it's there, so that I can not get yeah and just deal with it, so I, I don't get stuck in the moment. Um, don't get stuck I, in the know, moment. I've challenged you on a couple of things. Let me throw you a softball. <laughs> um, with a focus on the safety of those that we serve, how important is it to address biases and values, um, and most importantly, the effect of such in the supervisory relationship? Be it clinical or non-clinical. Well, you know, supervision is often uh, cited as a solution to many of the things that we experience, many of the challenges, both professionally and personally. Supervision uh, ought to be entered into mindfully as as a place to explore, as a place to seek solutions, as a place to uh, become vulnerable. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've had some good supervision. I've had some terrible supervision. I've given good supervision. I've given terrible supervision. Um, but um, bringing bias into this is, is a, um, an important thing to consider. I think what we're getting to is that in all aspects of our life, as we explore our values in every interaction we have, am I being most helpful and least harmful? And what role do my values and my biases play when I'm being potentially harmful? Um, biases affect relationships positively or negatively. Indeed. Uh, so let me just move on to, to something else. I'd really like my listeners to hear more about your podcast. It's very different than what I do. Um, and one of the reasons I don't do what you do is that folks like you are so good at uh, talking oh. <laughs> and recovery and the stories. And so I, I, I choose a different, um, but I'm fascinated. So um, it's very different than what I try to do with this one. But I wonder if that's because we have biases towards certain things. <laughs> I wonder. Well, maybe we'll explore that. Yeah. I love I love what I'm doing. It was um, it was a pandemic creative outlet i'm a musician uh but i stopped performing um focusing more on you know work and 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 home and stuff like that and and i felt an ache for creative outlet and um 
I enjoy conversations with people uh, across the country and they go places. And, and I thought, well, you know what? I'd really like to record these conversations, include music that I've created in the past. So the music I use on my podcast is, is from bands that I've played with. Um, I like to noodle around with, uh, with uh, design, you know, so some Canva Pro, I make some really cool graphics. I noodle around in iMovie on, on my MacBook to, to edit these. And, and my expectations aren't that I'm putting out this really polished, perfect thing, but uh, it's really just, it's a creative expression and it's called No Thanks But Yes. It's on YouTube. And I, have really laid back conversations with people in recovery, but it's, it's people who have overcome chaotic relationship with substances. So it's also an opportunity to see more faces and voices, more stories, people who are, um, have stopped a chaotic relationship with some drugs, but have a manageable relationship with alcohol people taking medications for opioid use disorder, people that have never gone to a 12-step meeting, yet here they are thriving over 10 years in recovery after they've cobbled together, you know, the 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 family, the, the purpose, the home, and 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 all that stuff. And I, I just really dig it. I'm on a little break right now. Um, so I threw out a couple retrospective episodes. Uh, what is recovery and final messages. And, uh, and I may, uh, as I, as you introduced me, I'm a technical expert lead with JBS international, and we are in a, uh, um, uh, in a partnership with health resources and services administration to help rural communities respond to overdose crisis and addiction in their communities. And we recently convened, uh, these hundreds of consortia together in, in a, uh, um, a splendid conference um, for, for rural uh, health. And uh, they asked me to play one of my videos. <laughs> I was just so honored that, that uh, part of it was um, the, what is recovery? What does recovery mean to me? And, and I, I was very mindful about uh, editing together some some diverse stories, some traditional stories, some 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 non-traditional stories, and and a variety of faces. So I I, I don't know, and uh, it's also available wherever you listen to podcasts too. Um, That's Pod one of the e. things I like about it is that it, it it's it's humanity in action. It's because everybody is different. It's not somebody getting on there and saying, "Hi, my name is so and so." Uh, I'm in recovery, long-term recovery, and that means this. It's hey, this is what this is my life. These are the things that I'm doing that are working. These yeah. are the things that are not. Oh, I tried this and it was hilarious and it didn't work. Or you know, it, it, it's people, uh, and, yeah. and I I like you know listening to that. Um, being the type Thank of person that, that when, I was high a clinician, when I was when I was a clinician, I liked crises. I liked working where I didn't have to think. I used my training <laughs> and all that stuff. So. Uh, I wouldn't be good in long-term conversation, conversation about people doing well <laughs> because I'd like, okay, they're, they're out of the crisis state. Can I move on? Can I get some other clients for that? Um, That's interesting. But I really recommend that. I think, I think we're opposites. Yeah, it's no thanks, but yes. Um, and it's an excellent podcast, excellent videos. I certainly recommend it. 
Um, before we finish up, anything else that you'd like to share with your listeners? I love the rural work you're doing with URSA. I actually sat on a couple of committees for the uh, the NFAR ATTC when it existed. Um, and we did a lot of virtual work before, well, well before the pandemic, when we were looking at Zoom and some other things to kind of reach people uh, and get information. So what would you like to share? It's your chance. Oh, this is my chance to get that final message in there, huh? Yeah, well, you know, um, I, 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 I don't know. I'm going to stumble all over this. I just encourage folks to to get out of your echo chamber and, and to listen with an open mind to other perspectives um, um, about drug policy, about public health, harm reduction, medications for opioid use disorder, and my friends within the harm reduction community too. Um, who many feel um, harmed by traditional pathways, um, you know, opening up your minds and hearts to hearing those stories as well. We're all in a process of calling each other in and not calling each other out. And that's a difficult process, but we absolutely must come together uh, as, as, a, as a unified culture of people who have overcome a chaotic or dependent relationship on substances and want to improve the health, wellness, and promote freedom for people in this country. But the infighting has to stop. There's just been too much of it. One other quick thing. Since you went to NC State and UNC, <laughs> you have a bias against Duke. I do I indeed. Do, because I'm a UConn alum and UConn basketball fan, so I certainly have a bias against Duke. I do. I do. But, you know, I'm not down with that conflict. You know, for me, at NC State, uh, you know, it's like the most awesome English department ever. And, you know, Chapel Hill, best social work department ever. And so I don't know. I'm not really into sports. No, I, just, I don't like Duke. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a bias. And that is a that is a class based bias that, that I'm very much aware of. No, yeah. I, I, when I was just NC State, I had a bias against uh, UNC Chapel Hill because that was a class based bias, which was ill informed. <laughs> Thank you for, <laughs> for joining us today. It's it's fun to talk to. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. And, and um, you're more than welcome to come back on this show anytime. All right, uh, brother. I deeply appreciate it. I'd like to thank Donald for joining us and, and to helping to talk about this common yet. I'm a mis, um, often misunderstood phenomena. Um, I really encourage you to check out No Thanks, but yes, wherever you get your favorite podcast. And you can check it out his website at dmcdrecovery.org, dmcdrecovery.org. We welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor, and I can be reached at info at CT Certboard. For more information, we here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who's listening. And please don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. You, uh, you heard that a lot today. And we'll catch you next time, everybody. Mm-hmm.